It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, verse 9, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Today we're going to look at three things that faith is or that faith does. And the first thing I want you to see, number one, is that faith goes on adventures with God. Would you like to go on adventures with God? Maybe after I tell the story, you might say, no, I don't want to go on adventures with God. But God has opportunities for you. I think maybe one way to think about them would be the large adventures he has for us, but another way to think about it would be the micro-adventures that God has for our life. Little steps of obedience in our day-to-day experience with the Lord. Abraham was that kind of man who went on an adventure with God. His life was not one that was filled with a works-based righteousness. He believed God, the Bible says, and God accounted that to him for righteousness But his whole life, after believing the promise of God, was a life and a walk of faith. And one of the things about Abraham is that wherever he was when God called him, he believed that what God was calling him to was better than his current situation. In other words, if you want to go on an adventure with God, one of the things that you must believe is that God's inheritance or God's way or God's promises are the very best life you could possibly lead. Notice it there in verse 8. It says, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. In other words, God was making him a promise. If you follow me, Abraham, If you leave your family, if you leave Mesopotamia, if you follow after me, I have an inheritance in store for you, and it is the best possible life that you could ever live. It is better than what you have with your friends and family in your home country. I've got something better for you. Now, Abraham, in his life, did struggle to believe the Lord for his power and for his better way. Many of you know the story of Abraham that when he finally left Mesopotamia and followed after the Lord, he followed the Lord imperfectly. Anybody here ever followed the Lord imperfectly? I know I have. He went out. When God said to leave his family, he took his father and he took his nephew Lot. When God promised him that through his wife Sarah he would have a child, he attempted to, at one point, fulfill God's promise for his life by doing the customary thing of the day and having a child with a servant in his home named Hagar and trying to attribute that child to himself and Sarah when that was not God's plan or promise. And twice, when Abraham felt endangered by foreign powers and foreign kings, fearful because Sarah was so beautiful, he lied. And rather than say, she's my wife, back up offer, he said, she's my sister. Kind of saving his own skin rather than thinking about his bride. But here's God, years later, speaking about Abraham's life, and he says, this is what Abraham did. 
when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, what did Abraham do? Abraham obeyed. These again are the eyes or the lens of grace that God so often looks at his people with. We look at Abraham's life and say he feared, he faltered, he was slow to obey. You look to God for commentary on the matter, however, and he says, Abraham obeyed. Abraham obeyed. Don't we love that about God? But Abraham, at the end of the day, through his struggle, believed that God's inheritance and God's promises and God's way were the absolute best way. Now, this is a struggle for us to believe at times, isn't it? I mean, the Lord has his promises in his word. He has his way in his word. But so often we're tempted to think that we know better than God or that as we look out at the world, we know what would truly be loving or good or kind. The Lord so often has a different plan. And the life of faith comes to a place of saying, I am convinced that God's way and God's inheritance are the best way. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to convince a little child that a nickel is worth less than a dime, but it's quite an experience. You know, they're looking at it, it's smaller the dime is, the nickel's bigger, it's like how could this thing that's bigger be worth less than this thing that is smaller? And so often this is how we are with the plans, the promise, the inheritance of God. It's hard for us to see in our own minds how God's promises and inheritance are better But the life of faith comes to a place of saying, no, his way is the absolute best way even when I don't completely understand. But the other thing about Abraham and his adventure or faith that went out in an adventure with God is that if you want to go on adventures with God by faith, there are going to be moments where you are stepping into the unknown. Did you see that line there in verse 8? Look at it in your Bibles with me again, or we could put verse 8 up on the screen again for you. It says, he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, lest you imagine, like, oh, that sounds fun, you know, you just, like, pack up, you just get on the motorcycle, and you just go roaming for a little while. It wasn't like that. This is like, pack up the U-Haul. And get the family together, put them all in there and say like, I'm not really sure where we're going, but God told me to leave. That's the only information that I have. In other words, Abraham went out into the unknown. He couldn't trust his feelings. He couldn't trust his planning. The only thing he had to go off of at this point was the naked word of God telling him, come out of your hometown and follow after me. Now, we like to know where we're going, don't we? we? We like feeling like we're in a little bit of control over things. We like to choose our own way. But have you ever stopped to consider that even when you feel that you're in total control, that's merely a mirage? You're not in control. Listen to what James said in James chapter 4. He says it so clearly, so straightforwardly. He says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, We will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, 
we will live and do this or that. In other words, even in our, the very plans of our lives, there should be a thing within us that says, though I plan to do this, though I hope to do this, the reality is God is sovereign and he knows what will transpire, though I do not. But God loves to bring his people from time to time into the unknown realm. Have you ever wished that God would give you the 100-step plan in your life? You know, that he would show you it's going to be this, then this, then this, then this. I'm personally convinced that if God showed me those 100 points, those 100 steps, I would faint, I would fear, I'd stress out, and I'd try to accomplish it eventually in my own flesh. I'm convinced a lot of things would go wrong. You see, God is a God who loves to give us one step at a time. One step of obedience at a time. And he spoke to Abraham. He doesn't tell him where he's going, what his future will look like. He says, you need to come. Follow me. Go out into the unknown realm. There's a story in the book of Acts about a man named Philip who, he was a deacon in the early church, more than likely, or an early deacon. And Persecution hit Jerusalem where the church was at, and because of that persecution, they had to run away. He ran to a city called Samaria, and as he ran, he preached. He told people about Jesus, and the wild thing and the beautiful thing is that it totally worked in Samaria. It seemed like every time he talked about Jesus, people gave their lives to Christ. They loved this Messiah. They loved this Savior. The Holy Spirit was just moving in these powerful ways, so much so that the apostles who were still in Jerusalem, they hadn't been hit by the persecution themselves. And so they heard about this thing happening in Samaria. They said to themselves, we should send some apostles to go check out this thing that God is doing in Samaria. They went up there and they saw it and they gave it the thumbs up. They said, this is beautiful what God is doing in this place, at least in part, through Philip's life. It's at that point in the book of Acts that it tells us that an angel of the Lord spoke to this man, Philip, and said to him, leave Samaria and go down into the region of Gaza. And then Luke adds his own little note about it as the author and says, this is a desert place. Now, Philip had no idea what awaited him there in that desert place. He had no idea that there would be an Ethiopian official traveling home from Jerusalem back to Africa. He had no idea that that man would be studying the book of Isaiah, but not have a clue as to what it meant. He had no idea that his heart would be open to hear about Jesus and the gospel, and that through Philip's interaction with him, the gospel would gain entrance into a brand new con uh, continent and territory. He didn't know any of those things. But instead of saying, why God? Why would you send me to the desert? Why would you send me to that place? He said yes to the Lord. You see, the Lord loves to give us that step-by-step -step obedience to him. He says, follow me, trust me, do this thing, and watch and see what I will do next. I don't know if you've ever had the, the privilege, the honor, the joy of going on a very long road trip with little children but it's something everybody should do at least one point in their lives, you know. And kids travel in one of two different ways. You know, one way that kids travel is by just getting in the car, the car starts, 
They fall asleep. They're doing their thing. You pull up. They're sleeping. You just put your hand on their leg. Hey, sweetie, you know, we're here. We've arrived. The other way is that they're awake and there's a question that they want to ask six to 7,000 times. And it's the question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's what they want to know over and over again. I remember trying to teach my kids about a clock at that season of their lives. You know, they're like three years old. I'm like, see this clock. When it reads 11.30, we will have arrived. So they just watch that clock. They'd see it click up one minute. Are we there yet? I said 11.30. I mean, it just never worked. You know? When we are following the Lord, there's a childish way in which we can follow the Lord. Whereas stress, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Or there is childlike faith. Falling asleep in the back of his minivan and just saying, Lord, take me where you want to take me. I trust you. I'm leaning upon you. I believe that you are going to get me to the place that you want to get me. Abraham was that kind of man, stepping out where he did not know. But Abraham also went on this adventure with God by leaving his comforts. Notice it there in verse 9. We could put it up on the screen again. It says, He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. It actually goes on to talk about how he lived in tents with his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob. And this means that as the years tick by and as Isaac was born and eventually years later when Jacob was born, they lived in tents also. In other words, his decision uh, had ramifications on the future generations. But when Abraham did that, what he was doing was leaving the comforts of home. He lived in an advanced society for that era called Mesopotamia. He departed from that place to go out into a more rural and rough or rustic kind of existence. He left the comforts of home, but he also, in leaving Mesopotamia, was leaving the comforts of sin. Because the Bible communicates over and over again that Abraham's home country was a country that was filled with idolatry. Though it was an advanced society in that era, it was also an idolatrous society idolatrous society, and Abraham's friends and family would have been caught up in that idolatrous mold. But Abraham was willing to leave this place of comfort to follow after the Lord. Look, it's on us as believers today to learn how to do the same thing, to learn how to be in the world yet not of the world, to learn 1 John 2 verse 15, which says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, when he says that, what he's not saying is don't love humanity. Don't love the people of the world. No, we know as believers we're to love humanity. We're to love the Christian, to love the humans of this world. But there's something about the Christian life that is to resist the comfort of sin. We might need a filter for this because I think so often this is hard. What things as a believer do I embrace? What things as a believer do I resist and reject? What things as a believer do do I use? Someone gave me a paradigm for this 
early on in my Christian life, and they said it this way. They said, some things you receive, some things you redeem, and some things you reject. So let me give an example of those three things. There are just some things in this world that we can just, at face value, we can receive them. My daughter, my oldest daughter is in a little jazz choir, and she was singing yesterday. They did like a Monterey Jazz Festival next generation thing downtown, and it was really cool. And we went down there, and there was like a band, a high school band from Denmark. They were playing. They were just having so much fun. You know, I looked at Christina because we, we got there a little bit early to see her, but, you know, first there were these other bands. I was like, we should have been here all day. This was so cool. You can receive that. You know, Mozart, receive it. But then there are some things we have to redeem. What's an example of that? Well, many of you have smartphones in your pocket right now. And uh, there are things that you can do with those smartphones that are good, godly, like download the Calvary Monterey app like Pastor Andrew (laughs) wants you to. He really wants you to do that. I'm with him. And so you can redeem it, but you can also use it for evil. There are evil things you can do. You can get yourself into trouble with that very same device. So it's on us to take that technology and redeem it. And then there are other things that we must reject. You know that there is no redemptive value possible in them. An adult bookstore or something like that. It's just completely rejected right off the bat. As Christians, we have to walk that walk. We have to learn, like Abraham did, how to receive certain things, redeem certain things, and reject certain things. But this is difficult. It takes a lot of prayer, a lot of counsel, a lot of navigating and getting into the Word of God. But Abraham learned that life. All right, let's move on to our next character here in Hebrews chapter 11. It's actually Abraham's wife, a woman named Sarah, or she's also called Sarai in the book of Genesis. But it says in verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, this is about her husband, (laughs) were born... (laughs) Like, you know, when I see you... (laughs) Were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable, innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. What this tells us is that a point came where because God had made Abraham the promise that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus came from Abraham's line, his family tree. But because God made that promise to Abraham and said, and the child of promise is going to be born through the line of your wife, Sarah, Eventually, Sarah, it shows us here, came to a place where she shared in Abraham's faith. She also came to believe. Now, the second thing I want to show you about faith from this passage and from looking at Sarah is, number two, faith receives power for the impossible from God. Faith receives power for the impossible from God. Now, as as Sarah did this, one of the first things that we notice is that though this 
power from God would rest upon her and this impossible strength would come upon her, the first reality is that she knew her and her husband's limitations. I mean, it says it there in verse 11. She was past the age. Or in verse 12, as we chuckled about, from one man and him as good as dead. You see, these people were very old when the promise came to pass. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, and Sarah was much younger than Abraham. She was 90. (laughs) She was not oblivious to the reality that she in and of herself and he in and of himself did not have what it took for these things to unfold in their lives. But you see, faith does not mean that we are not conscious of our limitations. So often, this is exactly the place that God is trying to bring us to. Because your faith must be in God and His ability, not in yourself and in your ability. And Sarah had come to that place. Did you know that the Lord often is trying to bring us as His people to that place? where we understand our own limitations. There's one miracle that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record in their Gospels. One miracle of Jesus outside of the resurrection. And that miracle is when Jesus fed the 5,000. You guys remember that story? Nod your head like you do. There was a lot of people, 5,000 people at least, And not enough food for all of these people. They hadn't brought any food. They'd followed Jesus out into the wilderness. And the disciples came to Jesus in a panic about all these people. We're far from city, the city, we're far from civilization. These people didn't plan on this venture. They need to eat food. They're starting to get a little hangry. So what are we going to do? Notice what Jesus said to them. In Matthew 14, Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. This was Jesus' way of raising their consciousness about their own limitations. Yeah, I have a job for you. You feed them. Immediately they would have felt, we don't have what it takes to, to do that. Or it's said this way, in John's Gospel, Jesus, when he saw the crowds, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So Philip got his own little private conversation with Jesus also, where Jesus asks him, he's like, hey, where are we going to get enough bread for all these people to eat? I just love Jesus. He's just messing with this guy. And it says in verse 6 of John chapter 6, he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. You see, Jesus was trying to get his disciples into a place where they knew their own limitations and they knew that they were actually dependent upon the Lord. Have you stopped to consider that the Lord at times wants to do incredible things that feel impossible to us, but in order for it to happen, we first need to be conscious of our own limitations, our own weaknesses. There's a story in the life of Paul the Apostle where he had some kind of physical limitation. He called it a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And this man 
whom God had used multiple times to heal others, he prayed and asked the Lord to release him from this physical infirmity. And the Lord refused him and said to him, my strength is made perfect for you in your weaknesses. And as a result, Paul then rejoiced and said, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities For when I am weak, then I am strong. Isn't that an incredible statement? When I am weak, that's when I am strong. You see, so often we use the calamity or the insult or the hardship or the persecution or the weakness as our reason that we could not be used by the Lord. But the Lord is trying to bring us to a place where we are conscious of those things so that his impossible power can be released into our lives. I remember talking to a set of parents probably 15 years ago, and they were in that season of life where they were trying to figure out, are we going to have another child? They'd had one child already, and they're trying to figure it out. Are we going to have another child? And their whole thought process was, we don't want to have another child because this world is so crazy. It's going to be impossible to raise this child for Christ. It's going to be impossible to show them Jesus in this Christ-rejecting world. But you see, in that scheme of things, they did not look far enough. Though it might be impossible with the self, it is possible with God. It is good to see your own limitation, but that limitation should cause you to cry out to the living God. Sarah, though, knowing her own limitation, also came to learn of God's faithfulness. Look at it there in verse 11. It says, since she considered him faithful who had promised. She had this conviction about who God is. She saw who she was and who Abraham was, but eventually she saw who God is, who God was. Now she wasn't always this way, as anyone who's read the book of Genesis can tell you. There was a moment where she looked at things and realized, I'm getting older, I'm not getting any younger, no child has come, and she was the one that convinced Abraham, go into my servant Hagar and have a child with her on my behalf, as is the custom of the day. Do that thing to fulfill God's promise. In that moment, she didn't see the possibility of God's power coming upon her. And there was a time later on after Hagar had a child named Ishmael and was grown, there came a time where God appeared to Abraham again and spoke to him about this time next year, you will have a son with your, with your wife, Sarah. Sarah was leaning up against the tent door and when she heard that, she laughed at the promise of God. She said to herself, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I'll return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it and said, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And the Lord said, no, but you did laugh, and that's the end of their conversation. You see, she doubted. 
She didn't believe. She didn't have this rock-solid faith. But Hebrews tells us that she did. What did she do? Well, it says she considered him faithful who had promised. I think that that statement from the Lord, that question, is anything too hard for the Lord? I think it messed with Sarah. I think it just searched her and searched her and searched her. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? You've taken matters into your own hands, Sarah. You've disbelieved me, Sarah. You've thought that this could not be done, Sarah. Is there anything, though, that is too hard for the Lord? And as she wrestled, as she considered who God is, she came to a place of saying, I believe in the Lord. I trust in the Lord. But this is how it often works, isn't it? There's a little wrestling match. We're not just born with this faith where we say, you know, I know God can do it. No, it's, it's sometimes it's an ugly process. I think it was ugly for Sarah. But she came to a place of believing in the Lord. In his book, When Faith Fails, pastor and writer Dominic Doan says it like this. He says, deep faith is an intimate, tenacious, all of life, sweaty, bloody, sometimes clumsy, and always real encounter with God. Faith isn't a choreographed script. It's a wrestling match. It means taking all of your fears, sins, insecurities, and doubts and going head-to-head with God. And yes, like Jacob after he encountered God, you'll probably get bruised, broken, and lose your swag. But it's better to be an authentic mess before God than a fake religious person. You see, Sarah, the reality was she did not believe for so long until she just wrestled and considered and thought about who God is, and it caused her to believe and to trust in the Lord. And what happened was that in a place of total death, where you wouldn't expect life to come, it says in verse 12, from one man and him as good as dead, came descendants like the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore. In other words, teeming life came from an unexpected place. This is the mentality that a believer has to have because the place of the greatest and ugliest, most gruesome death, the cross, is also the place where teeming, beautiful, abundant, everlasting life burst forth. So for us, when we're in the ashes, for us, when we're in despair, for us, when we're in the pain, there's this consciousness that it is from places like that that life teems forth. Not always in the way that we might imagine, but in beautiful ways of God's design. All right, let's read our last little paragraph and wrap up this teaching. In verse 13, it says, these all died in faith. Now, what the author's going to do is take a little break here in Hebrews 11. When we get back into Hebrews 11 after this teaching uh, and after Easter, he'll say, by faith, and he'll talk about Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses and Rahab and Joshua and all these miscellaneous characters from the Old Testament. But here he takes a little break and he wants to talk about that whole generation, kind of give a synopsis about them. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Mesopotamia, the old life, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. All right, this third and last thing that I want to talk to you about with faith is that number three, faith looks forward to the better city of God. Faith looks forward to the better city of God. And and because it does, it changes the way people of faith live today. If you want to have this brand of faith, I'll give you a few words of advice from this little paragraph. You know, these people, they, they, they were living in tents. They were strangers and exiles. They were looking forward to what God was doing and building them a city. So if you want to have this kind of faith that looks forward, is, is confident in that better city that God is building, the first thing you have to do is live in a tent. That's what it says. It says about Abraham in verse 9 that he lived in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob. Here of this group, it says in verse 13 that they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now, of course, I don't mean that you need to literally live in a tent today, but in a spiritual sense, Christ followers have to embrace some semblance of an exilic, sojourn, pilgrim life today. For this world and its dogmas are not, is not your home and is not the way that you are to think. You are to live in exilic kind of life. Now, about that, I think that Christians today are being presented with a lie. I think the lie says something like this. As a Christian, with your Bible in your hand, you have one of two choices in this wild world and strange days that we live in. Choice number one is to, through your orthodoxy and holding fast to biblical truth, you become upset with the world that you're living in. And that frustration causes you to become isolated and bitter and have a feeling of despondency about the world and where the world is heading. That's option number one. You can be one of those people. You can be what's, quote, wrong with the planet. You could be that. That's option one. Option two in this lie is that, secondarily, you could refashion and reconsider biblical orthodoxy. You could reconsider your theology, your spirituality, and your lifestyle to fit the dogma of the surrounding culture. And many believers think these are the only options available to me. I either have to be upset, bitter, and desponding about this world, like Jonah in his generation, or like so many of the false prophets in Israel's time, I have to change Scripture and 
blend myself with the world that I'm living in. We think there's this fork in the road and we must choose one of those options. But I suggest to you a third route, the route of Jesus. Jesus went a different way. It says in John chapter 1, verse 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, when Jesus came, His life was the most loving life you could ever witness and observe with your own two eyes. The way that he treated people, the way that he cared for the people, the way that he prayed for people, the way that he mourned for people. But he was also the greatest prophet who ever lived. The things that he spoke, the truth that he uttered, the conviction with which he resounded forth. You listen to some people talk about Jesus and you'd think he never said a thing. But he said so many things that confronted the sin and the error of his day Yet there was a life of love that pumped out of him. Now this third way, it is the hardest way. This third way is a confusing way at times. It is easy to fall into the ditch on one side of changing the faith or the ditch on the other side of just being a bitter, despondent Christian. But there's this beautiful way that the Spirit of Christ wants to help us live where we hold fast to the truth of God's Word yet are a loving people whose hearts are breaking for the world in which we live. We know that it is true. We know that it is possible, but can I get an amen that it is hard to live out, isn't it? But the Lord had brought these people to that place, and we have to be able to embrace that exilic kind of life. But as you do, notice that it doesn't mean that you're homeless It says in verse 14 that these people made it clear that they were seeking a homeland. They had a hope on something, and the thing that they hoped for was a, look at it in verse 16, a better heavenly country which God had prepared for them, a city that God was preparing for them. Back in verse 10, it says that Abraham looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, I'm sure many of you have been to some fascinating and gorgeous cities here on earth in your lifetime. And I've seen some incredible cities here on earth. I've, I've seen uh, Budapest. It was an incredible city. I, I went to Chennai or Madras, incredible city. I mean, just teeming with life. I've been to great cities here in, in the United States. I remember going to Vancouver up in Washington, a beautiful city. I mean, you just... There's something about a city that is so beautiful, but oftentimes on further inspection, you see the brokenness of humanity inside of a city as well. It's like the best and the worst in combination. But God, he is building and designing a glorious city for his people. It's the new Jerusalem. It's our eternal home. It's a city, it says, that has foundations. In other words, real permanency before God. And when we look forward to that city, it changes the way that we live today. You see, other worldviews usually say something like this. They say, 
embrace the joys of life today because all that's coming tomorrow are sorrows. I mean, this is usually a way that people will interpret what they're seeing scientifically with something like global warming. You know, it's, this is as good as it's going to get. And their own version of the last days are coming. But Christianity teaches us that there are sorrows today and we can embrace them because there is a coming joy that is most certainly ours. Listen to this from Tim Keller in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. He said, do you believe that when you die, you rot? That life in this world is all the happiness you will ever get? Or do you believe that someday the sun is going to die and all human civilization is going to be gone and nobody will remember anything anyone has ever done? That's one way to imagine your future. But here's another. Do you believe in a judgment day where every evil deed and injustice will be redressed? Do you believe you are headed for a future of endless joy? Those are two utterly different futures And depending on which one you believe, you are going to handle your life in two utterly different ways. And for us as believers, we are holding fast to that eternal city. And it impacts the way in which we live our lives today. Now in a second, I'm just going to close out this teaching with prayer. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer for these different elements of faith, the kind Abraham had, the kind Sarah had, and the kind these exiles had. But before I do that, I want to close by just reading to you this psalm, Psalm 46. Would you just think about this and drink this in today? Because it's about this city of God that they waited for and that God is building for us today. It says in Psalm 46, verse 11, or excuse me, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. In other words, even if the earth is destroyed, we do not fear. There is a river, verse 4, whose streams make glad the city of God, The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, that city, and that city shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. In other words, someday God will put an end to all war and remove all weaponry because it will no longer be necessary as it is today. Be still, verse 10, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, he's with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.